Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. This is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics Podcast, and today I am joined by um, well, someone I'm really looking forward to talking to, and actually someone that has become a bit of a friend over the years. Um, so John Adler from the Atlanta Hawks. Hi, John. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me today. So John, what exactly is your title at the Hawks organization? Yep. So I am the director of uh, new memberships in ticket sales, which is a, a long way of saying that I, I oversee our our new business team with the Atlanta Hawks. Okay, so the reason I wanted to have John in, well, a, a bunch of reasons. So, so John, and I think we've actually had you to class, and I think, like a lot of folks in the, and and I'll you know correct me if I get some of this wrong, like a lot of folks in the sports industry, you originally probably wanted to become a general manager, right? Yes. Yeah, that is where my whole career path began in this world. And I think that's almost universal for folks that wanted to go into sports is they want to be the, I don't know, did you emulate anyone growing up? Red Auerbach or um, not, Wheeler and Dealer? Not really. I, I was always a big fan of the, the San Antonio Spurs and like R.C. Buford and, and Greg Popovich and what okay. they were doing down there. Built a, a great organization. So so here you can really tell that I just revealed a generational difference between John and myself. Yeah, a little bit. But the the fact is that there's a lot of people that work in the sports business and relatively few that get to work on the player personnel side. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the points that John made to class years ago was that is, is, is sales the number one entry point? Yeah. Sales is about uh, 70% of staffs in the sales, in, in the sports world, is, is on the sales side. Okay. So, yeah. And that is the, the main way that people gain entrance into the sports world. Okay. So to get your foot in the door, you've got to start out by selling tickets for the most part. Yeah. In most Fair. capacities. And a lot of times we're looking to not find people on the sales side who are looking to get their foot in the door. But okay. We can talk about that. Okay. And, and so what I want to talk about, and I'm not sure exactly how to sort of transition into it, yeah. but so how do you think about the, ask you sort of too vague of a question to start with, but so how do you think about your job in terms of, say, the people side of it? Yeah, I think that's the key, the number one piece, and what's kept me in the industry and what draws me to the industry are the people, mm-hmm. um, being able to work with and help develop individuals is really okay. what I get my passion from each day and where our organization as a whole, the Atlanta Hawks, has done a really good job over time. 
Okay, so development is part of it. So you yeah. get you get these guys essentially in off the street, and you've got to. And I'll sort of talk too coachy here, but you got to coach them up, right? Yep. Okay. Um, in addition to that, are you actively involved on the the talent acquisition side? Yeah, the talent acquisition side is the most important piece to all of that because in order to be able to coach people up um, and train them and know what you've got, you you got to hire the best people. It's similar to those out there who are familiar with college football recruiting or mm-hmm. college basketball recruiting, right? In order to have a good team, in order to be able to develop them and let your player development staff work, uh, you got to find the, the five stars and the four star talents across the country to make sure that your people will be as good as possible. This is, this is great. So you're not looking for two stars that you can coach them up? Well, if we find two stars and we coach them up, that's even better. And, okay. and, and, and many times we do, too. It's it's hard, just like in college sports, it's hard to predict, but that's the key of, of getting better at things. Well, and as a little bit of further background, I, I attended the University of Illinois. John attended uh, the University of Michigan. Yep. So when we follow college football recruiting, we probably hear very different stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're looking at the four and five stars yeah. over here. And Illinois is always looking to uh, <laughs> find someone that's been overlooked and then it's going to coach them up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of a little bit of, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of reality to that, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know what, and before we get into that, so can you describe, because I think it's something to see, how the sales process or how the sales force and in particular that entry level sales staff job how does that work yeah so would you like me to start at the beginning on how we find them or like once that once they well, let's talk in- about let's, let's talk about the environment okay. that they work in and yeah. then go to how to you know to the, the recruitment side yeah and so inside of our offices we have 28 entry level sales reps and we have two different floors um, we split them up into two groups, each have a direct manager, and they're on two different floors. The floor that I know you're most familiar with is is on our on our mm-hmm. top floor, where we have a group of 15 sales reps in cubicles, about the five by five, seven by okay. seven, all all near each other. Big whiteboard um, on the back of the wall that has. They're all in one room. They're yeah. in cubicles, but the walls between cubicles are. Six inches. Yeah, it's it's small. Okay. Yeah, they're not high. So they're they're lined up. I don't I don't know how to describe it. Right, they're they're lined up. They're tacked in there, kind of tight. Right. Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. We are filling up every inch of space in that spot with desks, so we can get as many people mm-hmm. in that department as possible. And the managers in there as well. And it's you know it's a fun, vibrant atmosphere. Obviously, with everyone being that close okay. and a lot of people making calls, it's going to get loud and competitive. Is is the goal? But also have a, have a good time and be with their friends and be with their coworkers. Okay, competitive is an interesting word. We'll come back to that. Yes. In a second. Yep. So you mentioned that on one side of the on one side of the room, there's a whiteboard. What's on the whiteboard? Yeah, whiteboard. We have a, a big, almost almost like a, a spreadsheet type area where you can list names and then different metrics. A, a big thing with what our department does is we're measuring effort um, as well as revenue and the sales side. Um, we can t- speak more on that, but what we're putting on the board are their numbers so the reps can see right in front of them what their numbers are on a weekly basis so they know what they're competing against and what okay. the people that they work with are doing too. So metrics or, in, in other words, statistics, right? Yeah. So everyone gets to see everyone else's statistics. Now, what's up there is mainly effort related. Is also revenue related. Yeah, we'll also put revenue up there as well. 
So on the, the effort side, we focus on core um, data points, activities, number of calls, emails, text messages, someone to makes on a weekly basis. Okay. Well, and, and this is great, right, in, in some ways. And it's got to be sort of a question that you guys have to ask yourself, right? It's what are the what's the key metric to put out there, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of different things, and we, we can talk about that in a yeah. bit. But appointment set is important for us. So that number's on the board. So that's number of face-to-face appointments mm-hmm. set they have on a weekly basis, amount of time spent on the phone, uh, completed appointments, so face-to-face appointments actually completed, and then thank you cards and referrals. Those are also up there, and then their revenue number. What's interesting for me is it's like what is the most important and how that's evolved over time. Uh, when I first started with the Atlanta Hawks, the thing that was positioned, this is back in 2012, was activities, 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 make as many call numbers as possible. Hmm. By the time that I um, became the manager of the program, I was a firm believer that the number one thing that mattered the most was just completing appointments. And a lot of times you'll get questioned in the industry is like, hey, why don't you just get rid of calls? Why don't you get rid of the activities if if the complete appointments are the most important? But my mindset is if you don't have the activities, if you don't have the talk time, if you don't have the appointment set, you can't teach people the right process of what it actually takes to get those completed appointments. And as our entry-level sales program, this is what that is, it is a development program and we want to make sure that they know how to develop their process as the right sales process. Okay. So it's important to have all of those in there. Okay, let's so let's uh and I think this this is a great conversation because it really reveals how complicated all this stuff is. Yeah. And so just to break up what you were saying, so one of the issues is what is the right metric? Yes. And so I don't want to necessarily know historically, but traditionally the Hawks believed it was Raw numbers, raw, raw amount of time spent on the phone? It calls, yeah, just calling okay. as many people as possible. And, and again, I think it's it's useful to think about what these statistics, and you know, whether it's salespeople or whether it's sports, what these statistics are actually representing, right? That that calling number, that sounds like they were emphasized almost just pure grinding, right? Yeah, yeah, right? just pure effort. Pure effort, just so keep, you know, you know, keep calling, keep getting shut down and keep calling again, right? And it's almost incentivizing the wrong behavior because mm-hmm. people will just make calls just to make calls because that's what is being measured instead of making calls with a purpose, okay. which is the difference of what we wanted it to be is how do you make calls that have a purpose? And that's the statistic that you like. What would you say was appointments completed? Yeah, appointments completed. So we want them to make these calls, spend time on the phone to build the relationship, to ultimately set an appointment. Because the better that you do on that call, the more time you spent, the more likely you are mm-hmm. to complete an appointment. So so your metric then is, and again, I think a lot of good words in that statement, uh, the key one that I picked up on was relationship building. Yeah. And so now you've, I guess, shifted the emphasis. And again, it's like not to be too, you know, too many analogies to the, the on the field side of the game. It, it, it sounds like a Moneyball-esque story in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. So we get away from just almost like the number of at-bats versus the number of times on base, right? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Very, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, that that's the key point for people out there in terms of actually, and, and I think it's kind of overlooked. How did you come to the conclusion that, you know, you sort of wanted to shift the emphasis of the metrics? I can tell you how I would do it, <laughs> right? And, and you know how I would do it, right? I would look at the data, I would look at the numbers, and I would build a statistical model and see what I found. Right. What was your process? 
So it wasn't all that dissimilar. I was challenged by um, people that we worked with, the organization, and the reps would always challenge it too. It's like, hey, why do we have to make so many calls? And a lot of the industry was trending away from making the call. So uh, myself, along with other people in the organization, Eric Platter, vice president, and other people, we were wondering, hey, do activities actually matter? So we went to our team inside of the, the Hawks, our analytics team, and we asked them to run a, a, a quick correlation model okay. on what was what was working, what was not. And they just proved to us right there that, hey, completed appointments were the thing that attached the revenue. It was very basic. We didn't have much information. But we started just measuring towards it more. And the first thing that we did was we went away from weighting everything in the hustle score being the same to weighting everything in the hustle score, the, our effort metric-based mm-hmm which is what we call it. We call it our hustle score based on what we thought were the most important. So reps would start focusing more on the things that we believed and we had some science behind it as being the most correlated with revenue. In the past, activities was what was sent out on a daily basis. How many call numbers did someone make? How many? And that's not that we're going away from that because it's an easy measurable point. It's just not what we want to drive behavior with every single day. Well, so were you were you guys, were you and Eric then the first to want to go down the path of actually looking at the data to see the the links between the different observable metrics and the revenue production? Yeah, we took that leap of faith as being a little bit more what we'd call in our industry, a little bit more on the nerd side. Okay. We, we, we like our books. We like exploring and doing some experiments. And this was one of the first experiments that we undertook. Well, it, it, it's an interesting point, right? And it, it Salesforce analysis is, it's an interesting part of the marketing mix in that it is, let's say in, in a lot of marketing contexts, maybe, you know, your key marketing person is a brand manager. Yeah. Right. And what that brand manager does on a daily basis, how does that impact bottom line sales or revenues or market share, right? It's really kind of a challenging thing. But in the case of Salesforce, you guys live in a world where everything's very real, right? Yeah. Right? So you you have that ability. And I mean, I I think that's kind of great that you guys have moved in uh, in that direction. I mean, one of the things that I think is tremendously interesting working with you guys and looking at what you do is the amount of data on what people do versus what they produce. So, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's a potential goldmine for you guys. Yeah, it's been a big thing for us. And we've always wondered, how do you manage, a, a, and a lot of what we manage is our new entry-level sales reps, people into the industry, right? So we can't just measure them on what the outcome is of the job, should be revenue. We have to measure them on a development tool and that's where the effort piece comes in, and that's why this is so important to well, us. Well, and, and you mentioned that uh, that it's about generating revenue, and it's also about a training tool, right? Because I Correct. think you mentioned that, that you want to use the, the hustle score, so it's the statistic, to get them doing the right things. Exactly. And we have so much data over time, we know what correlates to revenue success. So if we can teach people the right process, which is what the hustle score is doing on a daily basis, and we put such emphasis behind it in our uh, in our management from our team, then it allows us to really know that, hey, these reps are, are going to be able to follow the right process. And what we say every every day when we're managing our reps is, give me effort or give me revenue. 
and we tell them 51% of what you're measured on is revenue because that's the key focus of the job, but 49% is the effort, and that's our hustle score, and that's how we're able to have collected all this data for the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, and, it, and it's something that, that I mean, we're, we're talking about sales, but just as an observation, I think it's probably something that is overlooked in a lot of, let's say, traditional sports analytics in terms of using statistics to encourage, I guess, player behavior, right? Yeah. I mean, so, but it makes it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, so that's the classic example, like, you know, the on-base percentage and, you know, the Oakland A's, and as the story goes, one of the guys that were going to get on base by getting walks. Yep. It's interesting. So you guys are, in a way, sort of putting a structure in place to teach people to get the walks, right? Yeah, and and occasionally get the home runs. In sales, it's not as predictable as, like, hey, you could be doing the right process, Mm -hmm. and it could lead to what we say is a single, which is a smaller sale. But at the same time, that process and the consistency in that effort process could lead us to our home run too. So um, you never know who you're going to talk to. You never know who you're going to reach out to. No, it's great. So let's let's go back all the way around. So so we've got a little bit in terms of how you how you use data to manage a sales force and how you um, you know reward them, how you instruct them. Let's go back to this issue of how do you select them? Yeah. I assume you do spend a lot of time doing that. I think one of the things we left out is how long are people in this entry-level program? So this is a 12-month program. Okay. So you're in a position where you're essentially refilling the ranks on an annual basis. Yeah, we have we usually hire in classes. So about three classes a year is what we focus on, a summer class, a January class, and an October class. Our summer class has become so big that we split it into two classes. So we're hiring for four four periods a year. Okay, so so John, so it it sounds like you know with with the size of the classes and the number of people that you probably recruit nonstop, right? Yeah, it's nonstop. It's it's um especially for our entry level sales managers, it takes up a huge portion of their time because of how important it is to make sure you find the right people. And so, how do you how do you go about that? Let's sort of walk me through the yeah. process, even from initial screening, getting them getting them in the door. Yeah, so this is a, a process that we are always tweaking with to make sure it's as effective as possible. But where it starts is we are finding the resumes, so whether that's on Handshake, Teamwork Online, referrals, whatever it might be. We want. Do you care about things like specific major or GPA, any of these we don't, observable uh, we, metrics? No, we don't care about major. If they're interested in the job, you know, we'll look at them and we'll, we'll see what they've got. GPA, we, we like to think it's important to be above a 3.0, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that there's anything exact behind that that is the reason why, and we won't not hire someone because of that either. Um, it really is all about the next piece, which is the phone interview that we go through. Well, and, and so let's, let's just stay there for a second, because I think this is an important point. So, you know, you don't have metrics that specifically relate to the job. Right, and so these metrics sort of mean something. Like, so what does GPA mean? GPA mean, to, and from a person I mean, from a personality indicator means you're smart. Uh, a little bit. You I think it, it's more that you're yeah you have discipline yeah. that you're willing, you're committed to to um, something that isn't really quantifiable yeah. in yeah. the the work world, but it shows that you're willing to work for what you want. Well, and the major might give you some little bit of let's say psychographics, right? Yeah. In terms of something about personality. But since this stuff doesn't totally relate to getting on the phone and trying to sell yeah. tickets for an NBA team, you know, I would guess that the correlations are le- are, are weak, yep. right? Yeah, I think so. And 
Um, you know, it's it's really challenging. The piece in, uh, is hiring people who don't have um, a lot of work experience. Well, in the people you get don't have work experience, right? Yeah, or the majority the majority of the people don't. And what you're relying on is what they did in the most core function of their of their last four years of their life, which is school. And a lot of the questioning that you're going to ask is like, hey, how you handled situations at school and a GPA and a major relate into that. Now, they're not final decision makers, but they just help paint a picture. Can you give us one of your questions? Uh, one of the questions that I will typically ask is like, just to start people off is why you chose to go to the university that you went to. And then from there, we typically like to ask if you could do it again, would you? Uh, instantly see are there well and what are you there, what are you looking for i mean and, and maybe it's tough to yeah boil it down to a few you know a few things but what are you looking for a story a story so the things that you know about sales is you can identify things that are really important in sales to have and through questions what we want to do is uncover do they have that ability and sales, it's really important to be able to tell a story. If you can tell a story about how you got there that keeps the interviewee entertained and intrigued and leaves them wanting more, that's usually a good sign on the sales, the sales piece. Okay, that's that's interesting to me. So it's, it's like you're, their ability to weave a narrative, right, yeah. to have a conversation. I don't know why I chose this school. It was cheap. It was state school. That's th- that's the wrong answer, right? That would be the answer that doesn't keep me intrigued, and then they would have to get me answers on other ones. But mm. on that first question, you have the chance to win over the person who's recruiting you, who's interviewing you. you got to take every <laughs> single chance you have. It's interesting. In a weird way, you may not even care if their story is true, right? Uh, there's no way for me to prove if it's true. Uh, I will care if I find out that it yeah. isn't true, but yeah, I mean, technically you could. If, but if they can engage you. If they can engage me and, and it, it can get to a greater purpose. And we'll have questions that dig in further on yeah. what they're saying so we can prove it, but um, yeah. But that's that's great, and I think that's probably the way you got to think about this stuff, right? Exactly. So if the key thing is their ability to engage someone in conversation, then you've got to figure out a way to gather data on that. And, yes. And how are you going to do that, right? Except via you know having them demonstrate it in, in an indirect way. Exactly, and and that is what we're looking for on those first phone calls: is can they engage, and then do they have a, a good enough story and background? that makes you feel like they might be a good fit for the job, but also our culture. So both are really important okay. as we go through this, what happens on their So I got side. a resume that was good enough to, to get a call. Yep. And in terms of the, the call, I was at least interesting and a little bit engaging. What's the next step? Yeah, so once they get the, the phone call, they'll, well, they'll get the phone call from someone in our organization. Usually we have... Um, our sales managers, or even some of our sales reps who've been through the program who are making these outreach calls. And if they pass that part of the, the interview, then they'll be invited out to a what we call a sales development academy. So these are day-long events that really give us the opportunity to test the answers that they gave us before. We get to meet them in person. We put them through sales training, sales role plays, um, a bunch of one-on-one and group interviews throughout the day to really get a good taste of who they are. Now, with that, when we're looking... and It sounds sort of brutal. It is. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Did you Um, love it when you were on the other side of the table? So when I was on the other side of the table, we didn't have that. It It was just a normal interview, like you and I are talking right now a little bit. But this gives us, and I look at this as two ways. It's an opportunity for us to sell what we can do for the the potential employee, but we also want we want to sell them on what we can do. No, I mean, it's interesting. And I'm guessing that in some ways the the problem is 
what, what I hear in this is that you're trying to almost do a psychological screen of them. You're trying to understand who they are, how they're brain works, yes. what their capabilities are. I'm, I'm guessing when you guys are talking back to them and sort of explaining what you can do, how the organization can work for them, I'm guessing they're all so nervous and stressed that they're barely, they're, they're, right. just, they're just trying to figure out, am I doing okay? Am I doing okay? Oh, yeah. And yeah. we'll take it even a step further where we'll actually, at some point in the conversation, we will sell against our program. We will give them all the reasons why they shouldn't take the job. It's long hours, not a lot of pay, 12-month contract, competitive. It's during the basketball season, so you don't go to home for holidays very often. We want to make sure that they know that we're not just trying to sugarcoat that, hey, this is everything is great about the job. There's also ugly things that you're going to have to work through, so they're not unexpected of that when they, when they get there. Okay, and so some level of mental toughness then is also what you're going for. Key, yeah. We want to make sure, like, hey, a big characteristic that we'll test for is grit. And, you know, this is just, hey, do you want to take on this challenge? So it's not a shock when they get there. That's a, a big piece is we don't have a lot of data. So what do we do is we look at characteristics. We hire characteristics and we train skill. Uh, it's very important. So all of our questions are based around, do you have certain characteristics that what we're looking for? So, now this is interesting. And so we, we've talked about some of this stuff over, over years. Right? Yes. And so a lot of what I'm hearing, and, and again, you know, you feel free to correct me on this. I'm sort of hearing that the, the interview is really about trying to understand them as a person to identify some key personality traits. Yep. Um, which suggests to me that you guys, you know, maybe you don't have data to understand, you know, the statistical relationship, but you guys have some intuition in terms of what the key personality traits are. I've heard engaging, which might mean some form of, let's say, extroversion. Yep. I've heard grit, some element, some type of like mental toughness. Are there others? Yeah. And and let me even take a step farther. I mean, so it's it's not it's just not you doing the hiring, right? There's multiple people making decisions. Some of you guys look for some are you a grit guy? Is Eric a conscientiousness guy? You know, is there yeah. someone else that oh, they want the, someone to be sort of high in empathy? How does that all come together? So everyone has their characteristics that we'll focus on, but we try and do our best to normalize the process. And make sure that uh, everyone is as neutral as possible when they're, let's just say, grading what a rep will be. So we have interview sheets that have different questions, and those questions are strictly for the person interviewing. So usually an, a, a rep or a recruit will go through five or six different people that they're going to be interviewed with, and everyone is usually looking for two or three characteristics. And if you find those two or three characteristics, they just go into what their total score is, if, if you will. We don't really keep a, a score, but it helps know if like it's a yes or a no in, in that regard. And then we utilize... I can tell you as a data guy, I wish you guys would keep scores. Yeah. If we could have started that a long time ago, we would have so much more data right no, now. Nothing would make me happier <laughs> than if I could... Because well, then it's sort of like the you know that that old baseball scout, their their gut feel on the person to... Back that up against something more concrete, more right. objective. So, I me too, yeah. me too. It would have been much helpful, very helpful right now. But yeah, like things like positivity, confidence, resourcefulness, discipline, accountability, willingness to learn, competitive. Those well, are just a few. Okay, so let me ask you this yeah. as well. So we won't go into too much of what work we've done together, but you know we spent a lot of time looking at data 
actually trying to generate some new sources of data and seeing looking for looking for correlations between personality and effort and and revenue. One of the things that I've always been struck with is sometimes you guys talk about different types, right? Sort of exemplars. And so, you know, based on the conversation so far, how come you don't have everyone sort of exactly the same personality in that room? Yeah. I feel like you guys actually want, on top of all this, you actually also want a mix of personalities. Right. So what we're hiring for, besides just being the best salesperson you can be, is we're looking for cultural fits. And if we have every single person who is the exact same in the room, it's going to not be a fun room to be in. And we, as we mentioned earlier on, we were talking like it's a small room and like people have to get along for it to be a cohesive unit moving forward. And teamwork and being a good unit is just as important as to the success of each of these individuals. So it's really important that we find a good mix of, you know, type A, type B type people. Uh, making sure that everyone fits in well so that not everyone is the same and you're getting different personalities to help everyone grow and be better. So you got some alpha types in there. Oh, yeah. Sort of killer types. And you've got some folks that are nice, I don't know, peacemaker. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this works. Yeah, yeah, all different. How does that tend to work out longer term? I mean, so do you? So you, are, you, are you trying to find sort of a... I don't know, almost like a family or a team with sort of different pieces that balance each other, but then everyone still ends up having the same shot at success. So so I can be a, I don't know if I could be a shy person, but I could be sort of the, the over-the-top alpha leader and be successful, but I could also be someone that is more of a glue guy and successful. Is that yeah, we've seen, right? we've seen both sides be successful. So... There's not one that you can pinpoint on that is going to be the most successful, mm-hmm. but they all are so critical to everyone being as successful as a unit. That's yeah. really important to us. And like, I think a, a baseline, there's a few baselines. Like you got to be positive. You have to be willing to work hard and like you have to be competitive. But besides that, like everyone comes in competitive. So our job as managers is to really focus on collaboration and really hone in on that piece. So making sure that the culture is um, diverse and of personality, it's really critical to be able to create that collaborative environment. How do you, I mean, maybe this is a t- really too tough of a question. So you've got scores on the boards. Yeah. It's a sports environment, so everyone that wants to work for you is competitive. It sounds like you may actually also screen on competitive. How do you get these guys to collaborate? They buy into the culture of the organization over time. Like a, a good, a perfect example is we had a really strong rep a few years ago. One of the best uh, sellers that the organization seen did a really good job on the hustle side, but was not a good teammate. You know, was not good for, not helpful, and he never got promoted long-term, right? So the key of this is not only can you be good at your job, but can you be a good teammate? And we we tell stories like this. Uh, in their first couple of weeks, we we talk about the value of teamwork. We incentivize teamwork. We do a lot of things in the office that are competition based, but as teams, and a lot one, of one room versus the other room. Um, usually, almost like different people inside of the sales organization okay. against other people, and like pairing people inside different okay. departments, so like that you get to know other people and. The unique thing about our organization is because so many people started in the entry level sales program, they can they have an idea of seeing everyone who came through there and people tell the stories of how they worked together and they were good teammates. And you know that if you're not a good teammate, you're not gonna progress far. 
we sell our culture well and our culture for ourselves proves it that people want to be there and they'll they'll buy in it's an amazingly complicated job in some ways isn't it yeah it's it's taken a long time for it to be built and it started way before i was even there uh, and i've just been fortunate to help I mean, uh, move in, it forward in some ways it's interesting right that it seems fairly simple yeah like, get people that it can sell well but the complexities are actually kind of tremendous right i mean there's there's issues related to recruiting trying to come up with the right personality traits then there's issues in terms of management, you know, having the right scores, figuring out which of the scores is going to be most correlated with success. I would also guess that there's some, and now that you add these layers of trying to build in structures so people collaborate and work as teammates while their scores are up on a whiteboard in sort of this very intense boiler room-like yeah. environment, there's a lot of dynamics going on there. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a just every every night this week, we have reps who are on appointments late at night getting work done, and they're texting their, the group me, and reps are very quick to be able to raise their hand and help out with inventory or other questions they okay. might have. And that's just a true sign of the culture. Everyone wants to help, and they know, you know, rising tides lift all ships. So, so you know, the classic thing in sales is some sort of dynamic incentives, right? So I assume that there's similar structures in place with the Hawks. And by that, I mean that the more you sell, the more you get. Yes. Right? That commissions go up or there's bonuses. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time on the different ways to incentivize our sales team. Commission is the number one way that we've incentivized. Uh, and we've tinkered with it this past year. We changed it a little bit on the senior level sales side. But yeah, it, the main piece of it is the more you sell, the more you get, the higher you get towards your goal. And once you get your goal, the more you get to push people to their goal organically that way. Um, but we do things outside of just commission as well. We do sales competitions. Uh, we do phase incentives. So we're in our sixth phase right now at the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, our phase five goal was hit and we allow the reps to actually self-select what they want as an incentive for doing that. So they'll be going to... So that's a team-based goal? That's a team-based goal. So okay. like as you have your individual goals to hit your, your sales numbers, we have team-based goals like this phase one, um, and the reps selected to go to Six Flags this Friday. So they'll be going as a group to Six Flags because they hit their goal. And again, this the is... The whole day? The, the whole day, yeah. They'll be going <laughs> on Friday. And it, it's cool because it's not something as a management yeah. team we would want to go to Six Flags, but because that's what the sales team wants to do, that's what the reps want to do, we're willing to you know create those incentives out there. And they know that they're going to choose their goals when they hit it, I mean, all within reason, um, but it, it's, it certainly it certainly helps. Are you in a position to systematically look at which dynamic incentives or which team goals actually end up being the most effective? So that is something that I'd really like to, you know, dig deeper on yeah. and learn. And I think it'd be unique to see, like, are different people uh, incentivized differently? Like, are they? I, we know that they are. We know that yeah. people are motivated differently, but, like, which personality types are more motivated by a team goal compared to their commission goal or a sales competition goal? I think those are very fascinating. Or different times of the years, which ones are more impactful? That's certainly a fascinating thing that I'd like to look into. I think that's and this, this is why I enjoy working with you, John, because I think you intuitively you you get all these kind of the, the possibilities. Like, yeah, there's always something more. I know. I, mean, I think the. The the problem that you very quickly they'll run into is what though right just never enough 
data. Never enough data. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> continually collecting more data, but never enough to solve. You know, there's always another problem out there. Feels like it's, it's never ending. Yeah. We can just keep getting more. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So, so where do you see, what do you see as next for the Hawks or for the industry? You know, because, and, and again, just to sort of frame this up, this is, like I, I've said it before in, in over the past 15, 20 minutes, in some ways it seems like a simple task of getting people that can sell tickets in and sort of, you know, putting some structures in place so they go all at it. But the reality is there's a ton of complexity in terms of recruiting, being able to filter to get the right personality types, um, understanding what personality types are going to be more successful salespeople. Um, who, and even if you've added to my thinking in this in terms of which personality types are going to personality types are going to complement each other best. Once you get them in the door, how do you design a effort system to get people to both do the right things to learn how to be salespeople, but also to move a lot of you know ticket inventory. Um, you layer onto that the fact that you guys have all sorts of incentive structures to keep people interested and motivated. How do you design those? And now you've added even another layer to this of potentially even thinking about how do you design those for individual types of salespeople. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> so if that's the current environment, what do you see happening next? And like I said, for the Hawks, for yeah. the industry? I think it's continuing to be able to mine the data and look for new ways to be successful is always going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Keeping up with the younger generation is going to be the major challenge as we go forward. Obviously, you have the people who are growing up with the iPhone now. Uh, my my generation in eight, 10 years ago is completely different than the people who are coming in now and what their expectation of the world and the work world should be. You're talking about the future sales reps? Future sales reps and the different technologies we're going to need to be able to keep them motivated in the organization, keep them being able to use their job efficiently. I mean, I hear this story all the time, but when I was growing up, if I wanted to call a friend's house, hang out with a friend or whatever it might be, I had to pick up my house phone and well, hold on, hold on. Let me ask you a question. Yep. Was there a cord? Yeah. Was it there connected were, yeah. to the wall? Okay. I had a cord. Eventually <laughs> okay. we got the wireless, the, okay. the whatever they were called, but the, there was the cord and, you know, you'd have to ask your friend's mom or dad if you could speak to Jimmy or Zach. And uh, Do you want Big Jim or Jim Jr.? Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and then it was even worse when you had to call up for a, a, a girl and had to talk to the mom or the dad before that too. And this generation is able to text their friends, you know, Snapchat their friends, social media. And it's a completely different way, which we're seeing already, is they might not be as comfortable on the phone. So people might be more shy, shy away from a job that is phone heavy. And you see a lot of people reaching out via text message and social media. And that's an, a new, unique way to sell. And we need to be able to embrace that. Selling via and on the other side. Yeah. Younger consumers don't want a phone call, they want a text? Yeah, potentially. Or our sales reps might feel more comfortable and be better at communicating via text. That's actually really interesting in that it opens up a whole other kind of um, potential you know, boatload of data, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And and almost in a like almost in sort of a disturbing thing where suddenly now, because I assume you don't have a record of every word the reps say, but if selling goes to text, you'll have a record of every character typed in, won't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's there's a lot out there about where it can go. And I think it's a going back to our hustle that we talked about earlier. It's a reason why we expanded activities beyond just being calls, right? It's emails and um, so forth. But this is 
this is where it's going, how the technology will change their jobs, and how this generation who might not have these same personality traits, might not have the same level of grit or work ethic that you're used to. Uh, so finding the right people in that environment is going to be continuously challenging. Uh, well, thank you very much, John. Very much appreciate the conversation. Well, that was an interesting conversation with, with John, John Adler from the Atlanta Hawks. In the second half of the podcast, I want to spend a little bit of time, let's say, decomposing the conversation. You know, it's, it's a very important topic. The, the conversation with John, I mean, especially if you're interested in, you know, if, if you're interested in a career in sports and you're not an elite athlete, uh, sales, outbound sales are a, an incredibly common starting point for folks. It's, it's getting yourself in the door. And, you know, and the sports industry is still, I think, very traditional in terms of paying dues and proving yourself to, to move up. You know, for almost all sports organizations, this problem of attracting and managing a sales force is a fundamental problem. It's, um, you know, in terms of the front office staff, the non, you know, sports side of the business, it may be the it may be the key thing. I mean, you know, if we think about sports organizations, they're a little bit different than many marketing organizations in that, you know, traditionally, historically, the brand building activities have been done for free. Right. I mean, the, the teams are all covered via the local newspaper, via sports talk radio. Now, you know, some of that may be changing as as folks move away from these traditional media outlets. But in general, you know, these organizations have been more in the business of pushing tickets rather than um, building brands. And again, you know, I think there's exceptions to absolutely everything. You know, if, if you're talking about if you're working for the the Boston Red Sox, where every ticket at Fenway Park is sold out, or, you know, locally here, let's say you're working for the University of Georgia football program, and you're going to get your 90 plus thousand into the stadium for every game, you know, it's less of an issue. But for probably the majority of teams that are concerned with, you know, selling, getting folks into the door, the sales function is the, the critical element of marketing. Um, so, so as we're saying, the conversation with John was very much about a human resources type topic. Um, and it's, um, and so again, you know, we can abstract away from sports. This issue of selecting and managing people, again, is, is very fundamental. And it's one of the things I actually will emphasize if I'm talking to students, if I'm teaching in class, is that, you know, every, everyone's interested in, you know, being Billy Bean. And talking about, uh, you know, the, the next, you know, how do we find the right second baseman, let's say, or how do we find the right point guard? But in some ways, it, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. Finding the right second baseman, finding the right salesperson. You know, I, I work at a business school identifying the right person to become dean, the next manager, the next IT professional. These are all people, as Google calls it, people analytics problems. People analytics is an interesting field, and it's one of the it's one of the areas where probably the world of professional sports is actually ahead of industry in general, in that they have really taken the time and devoted the resources to trying to understand, you know, how to do the optimal selection. Where and you and you think about it, there's there's a lot of logic to it, right? In, in sports, we have statistic after statistic. We we know how an individual performed in every game that they've ever played potentially. 
Whereas if we're on the more traditional human resources side, you know, what data do we have? So when I think about the conversation with John, I want to break it into pieces. And, you know, this is not going to be a course in Salesforce management. But in some ways, what I want to do in this, this part of the podcast is basically discuss, you know, almost an outline for a course on Salesforce management. Breaking this stuff down into, a, into several sort of bite-sized pieces. Number one you know, what John and I are really talking about, and maybe the, a big part of his job is recruitment. And so we can think of that as a selection problem. So how do you find the right people to hire? And again, it's, it's a fundamental problem. How, you know, how do you pick anyone for any, for any job? Since it's an entry-level position, it gets a little bit tricky, right? If we're talking about someone that has been selling, you know, we're, John works at the Atlanta Hawks on the NBA, if you got a bunch of resumes for people that were selling tickets for the Philadelphia 76ers or for the Memphis Grizzlies or Toronto Raptors, yeah, th- then you're talking about folks that have a track record in a similar position. And you can essentially do a forecasting problem. And I think that's, that's a key part of this, a forecasting problem in terms of how does someone project to this new environment. Now, in terms of this entry-level sales function, it's a little bit trickier, right? For the most part, you know, the folks that are going to be selling tickets in, in John's program, they're getting ready to start their senior year of, of college. So how does a, you know, how does being a college senior, what information is available there that's going to be useful to predict how well someone's going to do selling tickets? Really a tough problem, right? And, and so in a lot of the conversation, we were talking about the various types of data that might be available. Okay, and so let's say that the data falls into two broad categories. So let's say number one is demographics. And for, to make this easy, let's say demographics are things that you can easily observe. Okay, classic demographics to marketers are going to be things like uh, gender, sex, um, age, uh, other stuff that's relatively easy to observe, like, you know, what did they go to college? What's their level of education? What major did they have? You know, in, in some ways we can think about demographics. A lot of that kind of stuff is material that maybe can be seen on a, on a, on a resume. Okay, so a resume comes in and it's from, uh, let's say, since we're doing this podcast from Atlanta, it's from Georgia Tech or it's from University of Georgia um, in, in Athens. What's going to be listed there? I will have a sense of, you know, really kind of very limited stuff if you think about it. Maybe we know the student's GPA. Maybe we know the person's major, okay? So let's say they were a sports business major or a psych- psychology major. So two different, two different types of majors, one more applied, maybe one more fundamental discipline. We have information about GPA, you know, maybe one student had a 3.2, the other had a 3.7. So the, the question becomes if and how does that information relate to, to the job that you want to hire the person to do? Does having a high GPA, is that a good predictor of, you know, the performance of a salesperson? It's a good question. And you can start to tell yourself stories, right? So on one level, well, someone with a higher GPA, well, maybe this is, this is a person that is more committed. This is a person that puts more effort into it, okay? And that may well be true. But what else can a GPA indicate? Well, they, maybe they love studying. They love school. They love reading. 
would those be indicators that someone is going to be effective in a sales role, right? So, so a lot of the stuff ends up being kind of, kind of, let's say, questionable, of questionable value. And, and that's what makes this such a tricky problem. Now, the, the other thing that we discussed with John, and let's say the second class of information we might have on candidates are, are things that are more psychographic or lifestyle variables. And, and again, we don't need a formal definition of that, but we can think in terms of what is someone's personality like, okay? And this is, you know, I, I think very quickly you might say, well, yeah, that's going to be a better predictor of salesperson performance, right? So if I know that someone has a, let's say, gritty personality, and, and, and I intentionally use a term that's been in the news in sort of a non-academic term because I think it, it, it resonates with people in terms of what does it mean, right? So what's a gritty personality? If someone is, let's say, tough or resilient, they're going to keep at it. Um, you know, other personality types that you might look for. And again, let's say intuitively you might think you want for a salesperson's role is um, something like extroversion, right? So someone that wants to speak to someone, that wants to talk to other people. Okay, so, you know, we, we can think about all these, you know, myriad variables. So demographics, and maybe we can pick up from Avita. What's the point of the interview process? Maybe the point of the interview process is largely to pick up on the personality measures. Does this person seem like they've got grit? Do they seem extroverted? Do they seem conscientious? Et cetera, et cetera. Okay. This should already sort of indicate how this is a interesting problem from an analytics perspective, right? So how is this generally done, right? It's generally done by managers that work in the field who start to develop rules of thumb. Uh, let's call them heuristics. And if you want to be sort of a little more controversial, let's call them biases. So, you know, based on someone's working in the industry for 5, 10, 15 years, they start to learn some stuff. They start to recognize patterns. And then when they recruit future salespeople, they're going to rely on those patterns, okay? And so, you know, it might not be something that the person even articulate, the manager articulates to themselves, but over time they learn that, oh, I like these gritty guys. I like these outgoing, tough-minded people. They're the ones that get the jobs done as salespeople, okay? So what we've got historically is a bunch of, let's say, noisy signals. GPA might correspond to work ethic, right? Extroversion, as expressed through an interview, might be ind indicative of someone that's going to, you know, not be afraid to talk to people on the phone, right? That's going to enjoy the human side of the interaction. From the analytics side, what becomes an interesting problem is, can we quantify this stuff? Okay. So I said, you know, maybe the managers have heuristics, but maybe these heuristics also include some biases. So can we take, you know, can you develop a database that has bunch of demographic sort of hard facts and inferences about personality or maybe even personality test measurements and actually then look at the historical record and see how different individuals have actually performed. And again, you know, this is a, an interesting type of analytics problem because even if you have all this data and you develop these models, how good are these models going to be? And so one of the things that, you know, there's always going to be a theme and or it should be a theme in any type of analytics work is that when we build models, we're doing this to develop decision support systems, right? We're never going to, you know, talking about hiring salespeople, 
it's never going to be a task where essentially we're filling out boxes with a couple of pieces of information. It's something that where we can look at the hard data to get a prediction to then bounce off sort of the insights and intuition of the of the manager. Number number two in all this. So so number one, I think, is this issue of a selection problem. Number two is an issue of measurement. This is, you know, we, when John and I talked about what they call the hustle score, and this is, this is very much related to the complexity of, let's say, modern work and salespeople in general. So what are you going to measure if you're managing a sales force, right? Traditionally, Salesforce management was a little bit difficult because all you got to see was the outcomes. So you imagine a scenario where you've got a traveling salesperson or, you know, to go even more retro on this, a door-to-door salesperson, and all you know is the outcome, right? So how many encyclopedias were sold? How much product was moved? What you don't get to see is necessarily the effort. Now, you know, an initial reaction to them might be, well, well, who cares about effort? All we really do is care about outcome. But I, I think, I suspect that most of the time we actually care about both, right? Because effort and outcome, well, out- outcomes, you know, whether or not a sale is made is probably going to be a little bit probabilistic. And what I, what I mean by that is even if the salesperson does something right, you know, there's some randomness in the process, right? Does the, does the salesperson click with the customer? Had the customer just purchased a similar item the, the week before? And so, you know, if you're des- designing a, a system Ideally, what you want is to incentivize both sides of it. You want people to try, and you also want people to generate revenue. And so in the case of the hustle score, the, the Hawks are using a combination of measures, such as the number of phone calls made. I think there might be some, you know, talk time, appointments set, appointments converted, right? So you're building in structure, so you're measuring the things that represent the effort that you believe is going to lead to sales, okay? This is really an interesting evolution for Salesforce management, right? Because the measurement of individuals now becomes two things. One, it's a measurement to keep people accountable and to reward your top performers, but it's also a system of measurement that's designed to train people, Okay, and so this is, um, in some ways, this is great, right? And from a behavioralist perspective, a training perspective, the idea that you're coming up with metrics that are simultaneously doing two things, incentivizing, training, incentivizing and training, that's, that's kind of great. And, but, but again, as we move towards something that, let's say, is better because it's a richer type of environment, the analytics gets a little bit more challenging as well, right? So we're now no longer just, let's say, coming up with a model to predict how you know an individual is going to perform based on their college GPA. Now we're trying to simultaneously come up with a system that provides the right incentives that trains people to be the most effective salespeople, right? And, and so if you think about what I mean, it's like you know the 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 more general problem is when you design. You know, you have the performance metrics and, you know, let's, since we're talking basketball, let's say that your key, let's say we're talking about the on-floor variety of basketball. If your key metric is related to scoring, 
then your players are going to be, ha- you know, let's say you pay players based on the number of points they score, then your players are going to be happy if you implement a system that involves taking lots of shots, right? A, a system that pushes the ball up the floor and, you know, pushes the ball towards the basket. So with less emphasis on possession or on, you know, making sure that the defenses are, are, are set, right? So if you play in an aggressive en- offensive side and you have incentives for scoring, you know, then you're going to get a lot of scoring. So, and again, so from the managerial, the analytic side, it's something that you have to consider in terms of making those things work together. Okay. And so in terms of, let's say the hustle score metrics of let's say talk time, thank you cards, et cetera, you know, which of those do you actually emphasize? If you're going to, on a simple level, right, it's like the key is to actually understand how each of those actually relates to the bottom line out. Okay, um, number three in all this, and this is, uh, a, again, sort of a, a classic element of Salesforce analytics, is when people are working in these jobs, in general, it's not just a situation where, you know, if you sell a dollar, let's say you get a 10% commission. So sell a dollar's worth of tickets, get 10 cents into your check. It's incredibly common that there are longer term sales goals. You know, maybe if you hit, and I don't know what the numbers are, but let's say selling $50,000 is kind of a baseline goal. Selling $100,000 worth of tickets is tier two. Selling $200,000 to ticket gets you to tier three. And so, you know, maybe there are bonuses when you hit, hit each level. Maybe the commission rate goes from 6% to 7% to 8%. The important thing is that you're now sort of changing. And again, I'm talking from the analytics perspective. So if you want to understand how your different sales incentive systems are actually changing behavior, you need to realize that you're switching things up. Okay. So this is not just a perform task A, get reward, you know, one. It's that if you, you know, reach this cumulative goal. So, and again, and I, this is probably a little bit too nuanced or too complex for a podcast. So I'm just sort of putting this idea out there that if you change the system from just rewarding an individual based on what they do today, as opposed to what they do over the next three months, six months, or the year, you're potentially changing that person's behavior, right? So if everything is just based on, for example, you know, your sales today, you just get 8% commission to 6%, 10%, whatever it is, you're going to get a certain type of behavior. If you switch things up, whereas if you hit your goal of $50,000 or $75,000, you get bonus rewards, then suddenly the individual is not just coming in each day and deciding how to behave, how to function, what effort to put in. They are now thinking in terms of, you know, how do I maximize what I'm generating for six months? Okay. So you're causing that person to go from being fairly myopic, short-sighted, or in terms of just day-to-day, to actually planning and functioning over an extended time period, okay? As an example of why that matters. So let's say, you know, in scenario one, you've got the same commission every day, okay? So you're probably going to get fairly standard efforts day-to-day, fairly consistent efforts. Now, what happens if you change it? Let's say that your, your results, your, your take-home pay is based on what you sell over a six-month period, okay? So 
you start out and maybe you start out gangbusters, right? Because you, you don't know how hard it is to sell $50,000 worth of tickets. Okay, so, but what happens over time? And, and so you can imagine different, different pathways. So maybe someone struggles early on. Do they give up? Do they double down in terms of their efforts? And, and again, you know, you can imagine the scenario working out in a variety of ways, right? And, but, but I mean, you know, to take a sort of very obvious example, what if the person is going to get the bonus if they sell $50,000 of tickets and when they've got one week left in, in that six-month time period, what if they're $40,000 away from reaching that goal versus what if they're $300 away from reaching that goal. Well, I think we could suspect that that, that person that's $40,000 away is just going to give up. Maybe the person that is relatively close or maybe the ideal is someone that's sort of, it's in sight, but it's tough to get. That That's the person that's really going to, you know, put forth the utmost effort to actually reach those levels. Okay. And again, you know, it's a little beyond the the podcast, but modeling response to dynamic incentive schemes might be sort of my number three big takeaway. Okay. So to sort of wrap this up, you know, again, Salesforce management might seem like something that is a standard business function. It might be sound like something that is not the place for the analytics folks, but if you decompose the problem, there's a lot going on. We've got selection problems, forecasting problems in terms of who's going to be the most effective salesperson. Number two, we have measurement problems, figuring out what the right metrics are to both monitor the sales force and potentially to also induce the behaviors that we want to see. And number three, the importance of considering dynamic incentives when we're understanding how salespeople respond to incentives. And, and, and I'll, I'll leave it there as just sort of giving you guys a taste in terms of breaking down what might seem like a very standard business function in terms of the different areas where analytics can come to bear and potentially improve decision making. Okay. So to, to wrap things up, I want to thank uh, John once again. Love the conversation. I've worked with the guys at the Hawks on a variety of things over the years. Great organization, an organization full of genuinely intellectually curious people, um, very open to trying things and thinking things really a, a tremendous culture in that or as an outsider I think that's tremendous culture of learning in that organization so so for any of you guys out there you know if John comes calling I think it's a great place to start a career and and, and learn from some of the best with that you know as always guys appreciate all everyone that's listening you know as always you know encourage you guys to rate the podcast and subscribe to it until next time Mike Lewis signing off for now bye